0: Welcome to the Battleground, Wisconsin. My name is Matt Ruskin. I'm the Deputy Director here at Citizen Action. And welcome to another week from Wisconsin. This was supposed to be the big DNC convention week here from Wisconsin, but it is like many things in the age of COVID-19. It is virtual and online. And we're going to talk about it with our panel this week, which means Claire Zalki is with us. Claire is our Healthcare Director. Claire, how are you doing?
1: I'm doing great. Thanks, Matt. How are you?
0: Oh, you know, another week. I'm in my kid's bedroom recording this morning, and it's a mess. So, yeah, I'm doing great. Uh, Claire, uh, it's great to have you. And as always on our panel, also Robert Craig, Executive Director here at
2: Citizen Action.
0: Robert, good to have you.
2: Uh, Good to be here. Happy convention Week, everyone.
0: And Robert, I see your uh, place of recording is much cleaner than mine. Kudos to you. Uh, But as I mentioned early in the show, it is convention week. Uh, We are going to talk about the convention in our first segment. We're also going to break some news this week about an important legal case uh, around our democracy that Robert will educate us about. Uh, We're going to talk about the 19th Amendment, and we're going to talk about COVID, and we're going to talk about the post office. Uh, lots Lots of topics this week here on the show. But let's dive right in to the big news this week here in Wisconsin, but also nationally and in the world of politics. And that is the Democratic National Convention is going on. Uh, It was supposed to, of course, be this week, but it has been uh, be here in Milwaukee. uh, And instead it is online. And I wanted to immediately get the thoughts of our panelists as to whether this convention, which is these conventions are always very political, right? That's by definition and about really trying to get out the message. And how did this online convention work? I'm curious to get your thoughts. We're one night away. Obviously this night, we have not heard the big speech from, from, uh, Joseph Biden's, uh, from Joe Biden. And, uh, but uh, so far we've had certainly the three nights and very curious to get the panel's thoughts about what's working with this new format and in terms of getting out the message and what is the great, what are the limitations? What is not working? Claire, um, your thoughts. Uh,
1: so I've been watching every night uh, because what, well, I mean, like, let's be real. It's a pandemic. It just basically just gives my Netflix a break. Um, but also I was really curious how this, how this was going to go. Um, And I will say it the first night I um, was a little anxious. Um, You know, they, they started by sort of interviewing these individual storytellers and as an organizer who's run a few webinars um, over zoom that were broadcast live um, since this pandemic started, I had this moment of anxiety where I realized they were putting these regular people on national television and they could just say absolutely anything. And it made me anxious, but everybody did great. Um, So I think in general, it's actually going Incredibly smoothly, and it is significantly more engaging than I thought it was going to be. My favorite part, um, actually turned my least favorite part of the convention into my favorite part of this convention, which was the roll call of the states. Usually, at a convention, when they do the roll call of the states and every state formally casts their votes um, for the presidential nominees, it's it feels like the most interminable part of any convention. You're just like sitting there watching them pan to different parts of a convention hall. It takes forever. And you're just like, oh my God. And especially if, if you're from a state like Wisconsin, that's at the end of the alphabet. And you, you got to sit through the entire thing to get you know a two second glimpse of your friends that are inside the hall. But this, this time, I loved the way that they went to all the different states. And it was so interesting to see you know, um, each state, who they chose to deliver their message, what their little spiel was before they cast their ballots, the significance of the location that they chose to give their little spiel. Um, I I just found it incredibly charming, engaging, lovely. I was I it turned my least favorite into my most favorite part of the convention.
0: So, Claire, it's very clear uh, this convention worked for you as uh, a Democratic uh, partisan, you seem pretty motivated. Uh, Robert, your thoughts?
2: I think you have to bifurcate it by audience. That is, for a television audience, yes, of course, it's way better because it's produced for television. And a convention is an attempt to cover something that's not really for television. That's something that grew up in the 19th century at the beginning of, of mass-scale political parties. And so for a television audience, it's possible to create much more engaging content. See, trying to see what's happening in a room with individual delegations doing the roll call versus being able to go to each state and see a different spokesperson in some sort of interesting terrain or locale, that's way more, that's very interesting. And I agree with Claire that the roll call was great, and in fact, Next week, you'll hear we're doing an interview with Jason Ray, Wisconsin's own, who, uh, the uh, the Secretary of the National DN, Democratic National Committee, who ran it on national TV, ran the roll call. So we'll we'll be talking we'll be talking to him next week. Uh, I would say that I agree with Claire. It was really interesting to go state by state, and I. I there are a lot of great states. I can't name a winner, but i got to say to our good friends in the Golden Gopher State, really, A.B. Klobuchar is the best you can come up with for that fascinating and diverse state. But aside from that, I thought a lot, I thought New Mexico was great, but a lot of them were great. Alaska, a lot of the kind of western states had uh, very interesting people to, uh, actually do the roll call for their state.
1: Yeah, I, so, I, I thought that— uh... Um, Matthew Shepard's parents speaking for um, was it uh, were were particularly compelling from um, from that
0: point of view. So, as we mentioned, this is obviously this is a convention that is also to try to speak to the broader public. Um, Ratings are down. Uh, The first night ratings were down about a quarter. The second night they're off about half from 2016. So. Uh, Clearly, uh, less people are tuning in, which in some ways I was a little surprised. I thought given COVID, a lot of folks would be, you know, more at home and potentially uh, like Netflix watching on TV. But the numbers are down. Um, And of course, the Republicans and I I do want to get the panel's thoughts on Wisconsin. Okay, this was going to be here in Wisconsin and it was going to be here because Wisconsin is a swing state and we know it is. We talked about the Marquette poll last week. We expect this race to be close and uh, the Trumpites are here in the state and they're trying to make a lot of the fact that the convention is all virtual and also that Joe Biden isn't here. Uh, Pence was here yesterday saying it's uh, over 600 days uh, since Biden's been in the state. So, uh, and with the ratings off, um, Your thoughts on, you know, has this, you know, has, how how has this impacted maybe in Wisconsin? Uh, Do we, you know, do we think, uh, clearly there's been an impact with the ratings, but just to get any further thoughts about some of the downsides of the, you know, this convention
2: and being virtual. Well, it's a downside for Wisconsin because it would have been a Summerfest plus thing that would have made Wisconsin a national spectacle, and there's nothing Wisconsin likes more than to be really noticed on a national scene. So that's a shame. And that's, that's true of a lot of states. I'm not just saying Wisconsin, but Wisconsin's very interested in that. New York is sort of blasé. Of course we are. We're New York, but you know, uh, and uh, probably California a bit that way too, the bigger state. Um It isn't the same experience for convention goers. I mean, people go through this really uh, elaborate process to be there, and now it's like it's all virtual and you can't really do anything. And I'm sure that's true of things like platform committee and rules committee. They're usually a big deal. Uh, I think it's a little bit of a liability. I do not know how much. Yes, Pence was here saying how many days. Do people, do most voters really think that you have to be there in person during a pandemic? I mean, that's the question. They're appealing to some sort of notion of, Being present that is physically unsafe. And it's very interesting how disciplined Biden's been about it. Biden's gone very few places and uh, is wearing his face mask, and they seem quite confident in that. I think the other thing about what worked, quite frankly, is they had uh, Barack Obama and Bill Clinton carry the negative critique, and they had uh, war, and that frees up. Uh, Kamala Harris and now Biden tonight to be much more positive and not have to go on the attack on Trump. Fascinating to use Obama that way, who never does that and never always sees himself above partisanship, but gave a very, uh, talked about democracy being at risk last night. Claire, your thoughts on any maybe negative thoughts uh, or
0: implications here in Wisconsin? I'll say that, you know,
1: the it, to Robert's point, it is a convention, right? Um, and so it's it's impossible to make it just like compelling television. And so it does come up a little bit like a webinar sometimes. And um, like I said, I thought the second day was much more engaging and compelling than the first day. And so I'm not surprised that some people maybe watched the first day and then were like, this is not for me. I'm not going to tune back in again. Um, it certainly is a shame for Wisconsin, and I'm not saying anything, it's opportunity to sort of be in the national spotlight, um, and deservedly so, Oval um, that they that we played in 2016, and every you know every poll, every pundit believes that we'll continue to play this electoral cycle. Um, that that we didn't get the event here. That said, I you know I'm proud of of the party for behaving responsibly.
0: And with that, we are going to take our first break here at the battleground, Wisconsin. We are Citizen Action. You can find us at Citizen Action. WI.org. We'll be back right after this break. Welcome back to Battleground, Wisconsin. We need to break some news uh, here on the podcast. It, uh, it's going to lead the conversation on it, but it's, uh, it's very important because essentially uh, the legislature is attempting to supplant our attorney general in a very important lawsuit to the democracy of Wisconsin, and it also involves citizen action. Robert, could you please educate our listeners as to what is going on?
2: So we've been talking to you for years because this court case has lasted this long. Federal court case, uh, it originally was successful in uh, striking down the early voting restrictions and residency residency restrictions that Scott Walker and the Republican legislature put in. And then it also struck down the lame duck requirements that were similar, though not as they weren't quite as draconian because they were trying to pass legal muster. And then all of a sudden was overturned by a right wing appellate court panel uh, restricting early voting back to the lame duck standards just a couple months ago, which was big news. Now, one part that we mentioned then that hasn't been very well reported is that the uh, right-wing panel did remand back to the federal district court judge, James Peterson, who, who uh, had ruled in our favor previously, the question of whether the photo ID requirements actually are accessible to people so they can actually get photo IDs in Wisconsin. And they've empowered him to make that decision. And there's a very good chance that he is going to go and make it much easier to get a photo ID because we made a very good case. Our lawyers did on those grounds. And, this, the, what happened is, is that the legislature has, with our money, taken lawyers we're paying to intervene and claim before the district court, Judge Peterson, that the attorney general and the state of Wisconsin aren't defending the laws of Wisconsin and that the legislature uh, should represent the state of Wisconsin. And that motion is pending. Uh, our, our lawyers were a scathing response, so did Attorney General uh, uh, Josh Call as well. And so it's amazing that with the modern conservatives that dominate the Republican Party, anti-democratic, as President Obama said last night so eloquently, that if they're in charge of the presidency, then the president is all-powerful. If they're in charge of the legislature and not the governorship, then the legislature is all-powerful. It's just amazing. It's all about power and there's no principle. If it was the other way around, they'd be claiming gubernatorial supremacy. We all know that. And their own uh, stooges in the state Supreme Court would have to turn the law back the other way uh, different than they did in the lame duck in order to justify that decision, because they're not really judges. They're politicians in robes. So what's interesting is there's been no press coverage of this. And this is a huge deal for this election. And I can't maybe there's some I can't find it. And I'm good at finding press coverage.
0: Well, we're happy to talk about this and make sure that uh, all of our listeners are aware I mean, this isn't the first time we've seen this kind of inconsistent. We, we just, we've just we seen it with the vote by mail. The uh, Well, no, we saw it actually with Trump trying to say we should uh, delay or cancel the election when the Republicans had just been pushing for none of that stuff here at the state. So the lack of consistency on their side is uh, not anything we haven't discussed before. I remember back in the day they used to be for local control. Anyways, uh, we actually need to let's let's uh, I want to turn to something a little little bit more positive and very, very important. It was actually brought up a number of times at the convention uh, this week, and that is it is the 100th anniversary of the 19th Amendment. For those of you who aren't aware, that is what granted women the right to vote. Claire, this is a huge, huge uh, historical um, uh, moment, and it was it's it was kind of nice that it hit at the same time of the convention so that it could get a lot of attention. Uh, your thoughts, Claire?
1: Thanks. I think that, um, it's important to at least uh, talk about this and recognize it. Um, what the, um, what the, the amendment actually does and what it didn't do. Um, and I think it's particularly relevant now with Kamala Harris as the, as the vice presidential nominee for the democratic party. So, um, the, the, the 19th Amendment text reads that the right of citizens of the United States to vote shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or any state on account of sex. And, um, you know, certainly we, um, we say that this, you know, granted women the right to vote in the United States, but certainly we know that you know, this didn't didn't grant anything. You know, women women fought and died hard uh, for this right, um, and for that right to be acknowledged, um, not granted. It always existed; it just wasn't acknowledged by the government. I would argue, um, but also that there are. Um, That it it excluded a sizable number of women um, and um, explicitly women of color from the the right to vote in this country, both by law and just by practice. So, you know, we talk a lot about, for example, African-American people and especially African-American women for um, decades after this amendment being denied the right to vote by trying to go and register at the polls and being faced with Things like literacy texts and um, just, you know, men just straight up telling them, you don't, you don't get to be here, um, even though that was clearly unconstitutional and was later proven so by law. But what we don't talk about a lot is that there were a lot of laws that explicitly prohibited women still from voting. So, for example, um, I read this text of the amendment because it says that any that the federal government or states cannot deny um, women the right to vote. But in Puerto Rico, for example, they were a territory. And so women in Puerto Rico still could not vote for many years after uh, this amendment passed because the the constitutional amendment didn't cover them. Um, Native American women for decades after this also were often uh, were denied the right to vote because they were considered maybe residents of a reservation or wards of a state and not as citizens of the United States or as residents of a state in their own right. And Asian American women did not have the right to become naturalized citizens for decades after this. It wasn't until 1952 that Asian-Americans were allowed to naturalize and become citizens, which means that they also, many, many, many of them were denied the right to vote. And I think this is relevant because in 1952, that's when Asian-American women, Asian-American people, but women in particular, gained the right to become naturalized citizens. Kamala Harris's mother immigrated from an Asian country, India, in 1952. Which means we have a vice presidential candidate right now whose mother immigrated only six years after to the United States after Asian American women gained the right to become citizens, and that is that's something that chokes me up when I think about it.
0: It also helps provide perspective to just how historic uh, this election was and why uh, it's a big deal this week. Uh, Robert, your thoughts?
2: Right. It is a big deal, and I agree with everything Claire said. It is fascinating. The right to vote started with white men with property, and it's been expanded out gradually, and it's not always been a uh, straight line, a straight curve towards justice. It's gone back. African-American men got the right to vote, and then it was taken away when the South was allowed to, to do Jim Crow after the Compromise of 1877 to avert what they thought might be a second Civil War. Uh, And then, so therefore, the 19th Amendment, which was hard fought, really was only for white women at the time, uh, fully anyway. And you had to fight through all sorts of prejudices. Uh, And we have to remember that now because we're another time when we need to do new things, and that shocks people. There were also the notions that women were emotional and weren't going to make rational decisions and couldn't study public policy and all of that. And we now know particularly if you're a Democrat, that women are the most rational voters. In fact, we are, the Democrats, a 60 percent w- female party. There's a huge and still growing gender gap where men tend to more be conservatives, especially white men and uh, Republicans. And so issues like health care only issues because we have women voting. And so it's very important to bear in mind it also could be taken away because um, a, a right wing movement in this country that is trying to hold power undemocratically and doesn't have any uh, concern for democratic norms. And as I had one critique of uh, President Obama last night, he made it too much about Trump and not about the fact that Trump is the head of a movement and a plutocratic group of right-wing billionaires and corporate leaders that see their interest in their huge tax cuts and everything else as so important that they're willing to undermine the most fundamental thing uh, there is about being an American, and that is to have a functioning Republican form of government, smaller Republican. And Claire's right. Everyone had these rights all along. It was a question of whether they're protected and acknowledged. And there are still a lot of other rights that need to be acknowledged. But just remember, when you have doubts about whether we can do with fewer police, all the doubts that people had about women— and women let it. I can just tell you Woodrow Wilson, because I wrote my dissertation and a book on him, he converted and signed it because his daughters lobbied the heck out of him uh, to say he was being a hypocrite. So it was the Wilson daughters that should be given credit for signing it uh, and as much as President Wilson.
0: Before we go to break, and I want to underscore uh, the importance of voting and voting by mail uh, and requesting your absentee ballots early. It was definitely talked about uh, and a lot at the convention and it's 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 for good, good reason. We're gonna talk later in the show about some of the stuff that's been going on at the post office and opportunities to get involved uh, this weekend in supporting the post office. But folks, uh, please put in, request your absentee ballots. We'll have a link here in the show uh, to go online and, and get your ballots requested. Uh, The ballots will be going out around September 17th, and we're encouraging you to try to turn those around as quickly as possible. And uh, there'll be a lot of drop boxes. Milwaukee announced this week, and uh, they're getting uh, started with installing 15 new drop boxes, and they're going to be going up in a lot of communities. Uh, And those are great places where you can go drop them off if you're at all concerned about the post office in terms of getting it back in time. But with that, we got to take a break. We are. Citizen Action. You are listening to the Battleground Wisconsin podcast. When we come back, we're going to talk a little bit about some of the stuff that's been going on around COVID-19, including uh, our impact on our economy, but also schools. We're going to talk more about schools and how are schools reopening and how do they do that safely. We'll be right back after this break. Welcome back. We want to talk a little bit about uh, what's been going on and Sort of the broader COVID nineteen, although it pretty much uh, encompasses all of our lives. Uh, but it is worth pointing out that new uh, weekly jobless numbers came out this morning, and we're back over a million jobs that were lost last week. And this came as a surprise to economists. But I want to suggest that you know this ought not be a surprise, and I think we're just beginning to see this. Is I don't know if you'd call it the tip of the iceberg or what are the beginning of the impact of all that stimulus money going away, all that relief dollars, all that money that was helping workers and, and and small businesses and companies get by, and that was going into the economy, has been pulled back, and that's going to have an impact throughout the economy. And I think we're seeing this. And panelists, just want to, you know, any thoughts on this? This is my assumption, but you know, I'm very concerned. In spite of
2: the Dow being at record highs, Robert. welcome. You got two things going on here. First of all, the alleged masters of the universe, the economic universe, don't really know anything. See all the great, uh, the, the great recession where they crashed the economy and had to be bailed out, and bailed out in a way where people, their victims, were not bailed out. And realize also that we have increased income uh, inequality back to 1920s level. We have repealed. Democratic and Republican administrations combined all of the gains of the New Deal and Great Society and the 20th century. And the result is there really is a wealthy group that's not as dependent on the rest of us. And that's partly what's reflected on Wall Street. But they're also wrong because this is mostly a consumer economy. And if you destroy the ability of people to to have income, they're not going to spend money in communities and it's going to harm them as well. And so the stock market is also a bubble. And, but here's the problem. When you mix ideology and self-interest, often people act not in their self-interest. They're not acting their self-interest. Wall Street should be putting all of its muscle behind getting real COVID relief out there, like what happened during the Great, Great Depression. But instead, they're acting as they were in the, in the late 20s and early 30s, like, the, uh, like finance capital and like the Hoover administration acted, and therefore, they're making the situation worse, and they'll be the first to demand to be bailed out once they crash the whole thing. So democracy needs to step in because you cannot turn over an economy to these folks. And by the way, even if they could keep the economy great while people starve on the streets, we shouldn't want that. This, this a country is for average people, not for this uh, plutocracy, this top, top, top uh, 0.1 of 1% that is dominating our public policy. There. Your thoughts?
1: I'll just say I think that was an astute analysis, um, and I, I don't have uh, too much more to add. It's obviously just um, con- continuing to show us uh, the the wide uh, sort of you know wealth, income, economic gap that um, is growing in this country. Um, it existed long before COVID, and this you know pandemic is just exacerbating it. So. so, I, I, so-
0: so, Claire, actually, I do want to get your thoughts, because what is also impacting this is our ability, right, to have schools reopen. And when we have the situation with COVID and continuing to have high test rates uh, this week, and we've talked about this, we've talked about it on the show, uh, schools reopening uh, this week, the the state and state health officials uh Came out and they're basically warning and saying, from a health perspective, and I want to get your thoughts, that outbreaks are going to happen in the schools uh, with with the way a lot of these districts are going.
1: We have seen just uh, a ton, a ton of new reports of schools opening and then having to shut down within a matter of a week, days even. Um, whether and, and that's everything from grade school levels through university levels. So I, I have absolutely no doubt um, that if schools choose to open, that they will not be able to stay so for long, um, because this virus is still spreading, and I'm really concerned that folks are getting complacent, um, and I'm concerned about the false sense of comfort that people have because of the previous low rates of children, um, that is really not going to be low after schools open.
0: Hey, Robert, I wanted to get your thoughts on this, obviously, these state officials' And put out, uh, and they were supposed to be recommendations to schools. Uh, there didn't seem, though, to be a whole lot of real actual strong guidance in terms of how one might actually take what they're saying about the health and apply it to what ought to be happening uh, in terms of schools reopening. Your thoughts?
2: This is very troubling, Matt, and I have a lot of contacts, as a number of us do, in the education community. Matt and Claire do as well. It is not safe to reopen schools the way they're being reopened uh, for for in-person learning, and quite frankly, school superintendents are not qualified to know. School administrations are not qualified to know. This is a pandemic. Uh, that you you need expert guidance. The federal government's refused to give guidance because. They have the theory, the Trump administration, we just force people back in and they sacrifice for the economy and then it gets going again, which of course isn't going to work. Look what's happening in Georgia, where the schools heedlessly have these reopenings and they have to close because they have mass infections. That is what is going to happen. And there was a real pushing of the Evers administration uh, to come up with actual criteria. Now, he actually has the power to make them mandatory, but that wasn't even the ask. It was make it clear what you have to do, make them clear criterion. And that's what a lot of people in the education world thought was going to come out. And then it didn't. And perhaps there's some good reason for that, but this administration doesn't do a good job of communicating that. So I don't know it. And I'm trapped following the pandemic very closely. And you know, and are connected to public health and healthcare world greatly. So I don't understand what they're afraid of. We're not talking about, i mean, in fact, I think you could make a push that they should make the mandatory, but why won't they at least use their power of since you control the state agencies to make clear criterion so that then individual school board members, individual superintendents, teachers, everyone has a baseline to go with rather than these vague, mushy kind of Guidelines and then a, oh, there could be, there'll probably be outbreaks. Well, why don't you make criterion that would make it safe? Because I think they're afraid that there'll be political fallout. This is my only supposition that with districts that want to open and can't. And I don't think that's true in a pandemic. Even if it was, you can't put politics that way over the health and safety, not only of the teachers and the staff who are not young people, the uh, young people can be affected, but they. If they get infected, they come home and they infect their parents, their aunts, their uncles, their grandparents, etc., who are at greater risk under under the pandemic. If you believe the idea that it's not a big threat to young people, and that's a debatable point as well. So maybe there's a good reason, but it's not been okay to me, and I'm becoming very frustrated. I was in the Journal Sentinel this week comparing the boldness of Biden right now and finding common ground with Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren. And the uh, lack of boldness coming from state Democrats—not uh, only the governor, but where is the state legislature on this? On the Democratic side, the leadership of the state legislature.
0: Holy mackerel! Claire, your thoughts?
1: Yeah, uh, I, I mean, I've been saying, I've been saying for a long time that uh, the the dearth of leadership uh, by the state legislature is shameful. Um, I I would imagine that all of our listeners agree with that. And the fact that um, they they seem to be totally unfazed by the fact that 65 out of our 72 counties are classified as having a high level of coronavirus activity, which means that there is significant sustained community spread in those um, those areas. And uh, if I were a legislator, and that was happening in the counties in my district, I, I would be thinking this is my responsibility to try to get this under control. I can't just put my fingers in my ears and pretend like it's not happening. Um, and, of course, that sustained community spread, to Robert's point, is exactly what means that there will be cases in schools. And so to, to be um, sort of silent and be and uh, avoiding your leadership responsibilities on both of those issues means that the effects of the virus are just going to keep compounding.
2: I was gonna say these are super spreader events, a lot of them that are about to happen, to Claire's point. Uh, and, and daily,
0: right? Daily. And that these folks then go back home. It's 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 very scary. And you know, I'm my my son is in class right now above me because Milwaukee schools are all online. And the thought of him going into Rufus King High School right now every day and then coming home is not at all appealing and just seems awful awful decision and I just wanted to point out and Claire I don't know if you have any thoughts but there seems to be we're seeing a decline in testing in the state at a time when it seems like we ought to have more testing yeah this is just terrifying
1: yeah yeah no um it was it was printed in um, in some newspapers this week that the amount of testing materials and capacity that we have in Wisconsin right now is something like a quarter below where Governor Evers would like it to be in his Badger's Bounce Back plan, um, which, which means that you know we are gonna be facing this sort of spreading situation at a time when we just maybe even don't have the capacity to, to trace the way we would like to.
0: And with that, we're gonna continue to, to track this and talk about this, it's a huge issue. Uh, And it does reflect the lack of country across a number of different uh, industries uh, and areas. But with that, we're going to take a break. When we come back, we're going to talk about the U.S. Post Office and what's going on over there and how that impacts on the election and an opportunity to get involved this week. You're listening to The Battleground Wisconsin. where Citizen Action. You can find us at citizenactionwi.org. Welcome back to the Battleground, Wisconsin. where Citizen Action. You can find us at citizenactionwi.org. We're going to spend this segment talking about what has been going on at the U.S. Post Office. We talked a bit about it last week, and essentially uh, we know that Trump, uh, there's been an ongoing attack uh, to try to defund uh, the Post Office. It's actually been going on for a number of years, I would argue a number of decades, Uh, but we are very fortunate to have a guest who is helping push back against that, uh, and that is Emily Cephos, who is a Citizen Action co-op member, but is also a part of a number of other in organizations, including Indivisible, and is helping organize a ton of events with MoveOn.org and other groups around the state. Emily, thanks for joining us.
3: Thanks so much for having me. Excited
0: to be here. Oh, well, it's great. and First of all, thank you for being a, a member of Citizen Action, but also you know, a member of other groups You're extraordinarily uh, plugged in, obviously. So tell us, uh, there are tons of events happening around the country, but a lot here in Wisconsin uh, this weekend. In fact, I think they start tomorrow on Friday. So tell us what's what's happening and how people can get involved.
3: Definitely. So earlier this week, um, move on, put out the call. Um, it's more of a, it's a rapid response network. Um, and so a lot of people across the state were very interested in being a part of the, um, activities that would shine a light on what is happening with the U.S. Postal Service at this moment in time and show their support for their local postal workers and post offices. Um, So tomorrow we're starting with an event in Green Bay and then on Saturday, which is the day of action, the official day of action, um, we have things happening in Appleton, Racine, Tosa, Sloan Springs, up in Toma, so there's a number of different ways to plug into getting involved with the the Lone
0: Center. Springs come on that's yes. the first time we've heard that on the show and we've been doing it for seven years where's that that's awesome it,
3: <laughs> it is on the in the western part of the state they're very excited they were it's it's for some of us it's larger events for some of us it's just showing up to our rural post offices with our we love the postal service signs and and really hoping to get some some earned media attention on this this issue because it's so important right now.
0: So, tell tell our listeners why it's so important to you. Why are you you know super involved in this, and what do you see is at stake here?
3: I think like first and foremost, this is uh, everybody loves the the post office. Like everybody loves the postal service. It's it it is a an agency that is not. A business, it, it provides a service, and that is delivering the mail. Um, it's really important right now. I mean, we are facing what is most likely to be the most consequential election um, of our lifetimes, and at the weeks ahead of it, for all of these changes to be made, for this emergency funding not to be approved. Um, it is another piece to the puzzle of Donald Trump trying to undermine um, our election, and a way for Americans to exercise their constitutional right to um, vote. And so there's that piece with the election coming up. There's also the piece where people are, you know, that's how they get their paychecks. That's how they get their social security checks. It's how they get their medications. And we're seeing unprecedented delays um, in these things. And a lot of people are left in the dark and wondering what is happening.
1: Emily, I'm so glad that you mentioned that the mail is how a lot of people get their medications. I was actually talking with um, one of our organizers, uh, Ben, who works in the Driftless part of the state, about how he gets um, some medication that is incredibly important for his health uh, through the mail, because the nearest pharmacy that would carry it is over 35 miles away. And that for a lot of folks in rural parts of the state, that might be 100 miles away. And so folks might have to drive, you know, 10s or even 100 miles just to, to get, you know, a week's worth of life-saving medication uh, and for folks that are in sort of high-risk pools right now uh, because of the, uh, the pandemic that travel, especially folks who need like specialty medications for autoimmune diseases, are, are you know, that travel is all the more challenging because it's also a health risk, not just a huge economic inconvenience. Um, mm-hmm. So I'm so glad that you, that you highlighted all of the vital things that we use um, the post office for. Um, I, I was wondering if you could maybe tell us a little bit more about what brought you into this, into this advocacy space, what got you involved with, with citizen action and with, um, trying to save the post office.
3: Um, I think that just kind of sounds like this is another issue that we're not really connecting to the larger the larger efforts that are happening um, out in Washington to really undermine um, the election and what we know is going to happen. So that was really my, um, my impetus as far as my involvement. Um, I do think that after having started to work with these organizers and listening to exactly what you said, Claire, about these rural communities, that are dependent on the USPS for the, the life-saving medications for their checks that are allowing them. During a pandemic, when we've also cut out, you know, like the uh, the UI uh, as of July 31st, like we are, we're already in dire straits and this is just a get another, we're cutting, you know, all of these folks off um, from the, the necessary supports that they need in this moment.
2: So it occurs to me that, The only silver lining here, as threatening and scary as this is, Emily, Mm -hmm. is that it reminds us of some of the basic institutions that have been standard for centuries, in this case, that are under attack, just how radical the modern conservative movement is. Because it's really a progressive concept, if you think about it. We kind of don't think enough about things we can take for granted, that we grew up with, right, that have been around forever. But the idea that costs you the same to mail something to any part of the country, regardless of how remote it is, regardless of how sparsely populated it is, regardless of maybe how densely populated it is, is amazing. And there's been this attack on this post office for years. And it's 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 like the attack on everything else. Social Security and Medicare, if you like those, those are also at risk, but the post office we didn't think used to think that was something that could be assaulted, but that is how radical this movement is, this new conservative movement that took over the Republican Party. And we didn't used to think a president would actually try to intervene and prevent uh, people's votes from being delivered, rather than in a pandemic when you obviously for safety need to mail, do more mail voting actually funding that and making it possible and now they seem to have flipped to this argument if you turn on Fox News that oh well it just there's no way you could handle all these ballots and though therefore that's unsafe and the post office has failed and loses money etc so they're doubling down the post office attack but then saying somehow that we need to keep voting rules and requirements that are and post office capacity that is doesn't work in a pandemic that we shouldn't adjust to an emergency. It's like not adjusting to World War II by changing the way you operate. I mean, do you feel like this is a broader kind of threat to fundamental values, progressive values, which are American values?
3: I think it's definitely a threat to American values. Like this is another system that makes, you know, just living in this country a more equitable experience for people, you know, like, and we're taking away all of these supports and that is, that is dangerous and it is, it's terrible. And so, um, I think that there's, it's that, but we have to remember that we, at the end of the day, like postmaster general, DeJoy, and what, and his involvement in like all, like there are so many pieces to this puzzle, but at the end of the day, who is going to be affected most by this are everyday Americans that are not going to be receiving what they need to survive in this moment. Um, and that is what is so like terrible and egregious about the way that this is being handled and rolled out. And then, and then the the facade that we're somehow fixing it by saying, "Well, these won't be implemented <laughs> until after November when all the damage has already been done." You know, like we're we've got sorting machines that are no longer operational. We've got delays in mail that har- we've never seen before. And so it's 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 incredible um, to witness.
2: And I think a thing to recognize is we allowed private companies to come in and take the profitable pieces and then mm-hmm. we say oh it's not profitable well yes it's it's not all profitable because it's a uni- as you say it's also a service because it's not profitable to make a mail uh, an, an envelope a first class letter cost the same to mail across the state of wisconsin or just across the city as it is to, 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 sh- to send it to wyoming right that has mm-hmm. to be subsidized
3: Yeah. And I think it's like that whole, I I keep coming back to this with everything that is happening, is that people over profit, right? This is a perfect example of that, that we're not trying to make millions of dollars off the postal service. We're trying to get people what they need to live.
0: Well, I would also say this is a perfect example of what our healthy democracy looks like. Someone like yourself who helped organize this and who is playing an active role in fighting back. And I would say we're winning and we'll, we'll, we will win this fight. Uh, Trump gaslighting us all with that tweet this week saying, save the post office. I mean, come on, that's a, that's a world where we're winning the frame. Uh, and it's because of folks like you, and we wanna thank you for taking a leadership role uh, in your democracy and getting involved in citizen action. But more importantly, like this weekend, organizing this. We really appreciate you and, uh, and the work you did uh, are doing, and that you're, you're, you're coming on. Uh, Robert, it looks like you have one final thing you want to say. And
2: I, we'd be remiss if we didn't get a plug to the post office, a great employer, a union employer that creates a gateway opportunity for a lot of people, a lot of black and brown people. And so that's also at, uh, under attack here, but thank you, Emily, for everything you're doing.
0: Yeah. Thank you all as well. I appreciate it. And with that, we have to wrap up this battleground, Wisconsin podcast. We want to thank Emily for joining us. And as always want to thank Brian Woolridge our producer, for making this happen from all of our homes every week. And folks, get those absentee ballot requests in. We'll have a link. We'll also have a link to all these events this weekend that Emily talked about. Get out, get active. We'll see you next week at the Battleground Wisconsin.